This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. John chapter 6 this morning, if you join me there, John 6. So, all right, I'm going to start off with a sign today. Now, this is not a sign from God, this is a sign from me. Okay, so here's, here's my sign, okay? So what does my sign say? For sale, yeah. You wouldn't believe how much interest you can create in a family by just purchasing a for sale sign. I bought the sign, I set it on the couch in our fifth wheel that we live in, and everybody commented, what are we selling? Dad, are we selling the truck? You know, I just like incessant questions. And finally I said, maybe one of you's for sale. Oh, Dad, you know. When you see a for sale sign, you know that something's about to change hands. Something's about to go from being the property of one person to being property of somebody else. A friend of mine called me one day. He's a pastor in New Jersey, and we'd grown up together. I, I grew up in southern New Jersey, and I went to Gloucester County Christian School, and, and my friend Joe's dad was our Bible teacher, and now Joe's the Bible teacher at that school. So he and I went to high school together. We went to college together. Known him a long time. And he called up, and he said, hey, Rich, question. You think a person can be a Christian but not be a disciple? I said, well, I mean, yeah, you can. I don't think that's the way God wants it. But, you know, 1 Corinthians talks about your carnal. He mentions um, just a lot who vexed his righteous soul every day. And I, I don't see a lot of righteousness in, in, uh, in Lot. Of course, the Lord didn't see any righteousness in me. It had to be imputed to us. So, you know, I said, yeah, I guess I have to admit that you... You can be a Christian but not be a disciple. I don't think that's how God wants it. He said, okay, how about this one, though? Could a person be a disciple but not be a Christian? I said, well, you know, I'm thinking of disciple as a devoted follower. Hmm. I said, my impulse is to say, well, no way. But then I, I thought about this. He had 12 disciples, and what happened to one of them? Yeah, he, he's in hell. Judas. And then I read the passage that we're going to look at this morning where there were many of his disciples that went back and walked no more with him. I said, Joe, you know, I guess, I guess a person could be a disciple and not even be a Christian. But here's what I know. The Lord wants everybody to be a Christian. And he wants every Christian to be a disciple. And I've entitled the message today with a question, are you for sale? Are you for sale? It's John 6. I'll tell you this, uh, this is not a passage that you would typically hear an evangelist preach out of. In fact, it's not a passage I've heard a lot of pastors preach out of unless they're going through the book of John. It's just one of those, what? And, and so I'm going to forewarn you that as we go to this passage. It's Jesus' bread of life sermon, and he uses an analogy that makes you scratch your head. Tell you what, if, if you're capable, let's stand together for the reading. And I'm going to read from verse 59 down to verse 71. Okay, I'll read if you follow along. I'm going to tell you this. We're coming into the end of the chapter, so where have we come to get here? The beginning of the chapter, Jesus feeds the 5,000 men plus their wives and kids with just five loaves and two fish. You remember the miracle. When that happens, they said, let's make him a king. And politicians have figured this out. If you give people goodies, they'll vote you into office. And so he wasn't running for office, but they said, let's make him a king. And see, the first time he came, he didn't come to be ruler. That'll be the second time. The first time he came to be redeemer. He can't be ruler of the people till he first became redeemer of the people. 
So they say, make him a king. And then he preaches a message. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. Don't live your life for food that's going to rot. And he goes on, I am the bread of life. He gives the famous bread of life sermon. He's concluding that as we now come to verse 59. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that the disciples murmured at it, he said to them, doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they're spirit and they're life. But there's some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. He said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Okay, thanks. You can be seated. appreciate you standing. I'm going to break it down into three areas. I'm going to start with the crisis point, number one. The crisis point. Let me tell you a little background here. I, uh, after I graduated from college, I, um, I got a, a degree in Bible at uh, Pensacola Christian in Florida. And after I graduated, I traveled for the school as a college representative. So I went to Christian schools all over the country. So I was usually in two schools every day. And as an evangelist now, starting my 30th year in June, I've been in hundreds of Christian schools across the country. So I, I give you that as context. Lots and lots of Christian schools. And many times Christian schools will have pictures of their graduating classes. And when I would go into a school for the first time, I'd say to a teacher, hey, tell me about some of your grads. What are they doing? Oh, see, this guy here, he's a pastor now. Oh, that girl there, she's a missionary. Oh, this guy, he, he's a U.S. Uh, congressman. Some of these kind of stories. Oh, that guy there, he married that girl. He has a business here, and, and he's a deacon in our church. You know, really good stories. And then I'd get nosy and say, can you tell me any of the stories on the other end of the spectrum? Because every school has them, you know. Even Christian schools have them. Even homeschool has them. And so I'd say, tell me about some of the kids on the other end. They're like, yeah, see this guy here? Yeah, he, he got out of school. He got hooked on drugs. Yeah, he, he's in jail now. Oh, yeah, this, this guy, he married that girl. Yeah, that marriage didn't last like three years, and, and they dropped out of church and went through an awful divorce, and they both say they don't believe in God now. Oh, this guy here? Yeah, he claims to be an atheist. He's, he's in prison for life. I've literally heard those kind of stories. And think about this. These kids grew up in the same churches, same school. They all heard the same truth, but totally different outcomes. Because, you see, the preaching of the truth itself doesn't make a person godly. You've got to embrace it. You've got to believe it. There was never, this is uncontested, there was never a greater preacher than Jesus and one of his 12 disciples is lost and in hell. Let's dive into it. The crisis point here. Let me go to verse 60 for a minute. Verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? It starts with the hard saying. The hard saying. There are going to be times in your life you're going to hear some truth, and it's not going to be easy to accept. In fact, 
I like the way Oliver B. Green used to say it. He's the old evangelist out of Greenville, South Carolina. He said, if rough, rugged religion rubs men the wrong way, they ought to turn around so to rub them the right way. Meaning, sometimes you're going to hear things, they, they rub you the wrong way. You ever see a kid pet a cat against the green? How do, it does not go well for the child or the cat, you know? <laughs> the hackles come up and the claws come out. And mom says, honey, turn the kitty around. And then all of a sudden, Yeah, nobody likes to be rubbed against the grain. But let me tell you something, folks. When God's word rubs us the wrong way, God isn't going to change. It's we that need to change. That's called repentance. Pastors have been emphasizing the need for revival. I wholeheartedly concur. That's why I'm here. But we're not going to have revival if we don't repent. Repentance to change your mind. That will result in a change of direction. So they said, this is a hard saying. Okay, what was it that was hard? Well, for sake of time, let's go back just a little bit. We can't go into great depth, but let's go back to verse 51, all right? 51 will give us a little bit of the context. I gave you a little overview. So Jesus is speaking here in 51. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread that I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among, their self, among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, I told you this, with my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Well, yeah, now you understand. I remember when I was in a class called uh, hermeneutics, which is the proper interpretation of the Bible. We were taught a really important principle of understanding your Bible. And the principle is this, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. When the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. So normally God says what he means, like I am the way, the truth, and the life, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Most of the time God just spells it out. But have you ever read something in your Bible that left you scratching your head? This is one of those passages. I got to tell you, as I was through this, I mean, what do you normally do when you read something that, that stumps you? Okay, a lot of people just shut it down and that's it. They don't even expend any energy. You're like, I don't understand it. A lot of people will call the pastor and say, Pastor, I got a question for you. What does this mean? Other people are like, I don't want to bother pastor, but we'll pull out a commentary first, which is not a bad idea. I mean, people have spent hours studying. But let me suggest something else. When you read something in the Bible you don't understand, how about you ask the author? If you're a Christian, you know him. If you're not a Christian, he wants you to know him. You know the author of this book. So I said, Lord, I don't really understand this. This just seems mystifying to me. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Now, what he's using here is figure of speech. Okay, so figures of speech are, you know, uh, they can be simile. For instance, simile, simile means using the terms like or as. If you ever had the conversation with your teenagers that not every English sentence begins with like? <laughs> it was like totally awesome, Mom. It was like amazing. It was like, 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 like. Yeah, not every sentence begins with like, right? But simile is comparison. But there are other times we use uh, figures of speech like metaphor. You might say, that, that guy's a rock. 
Now, do we literally mean the athlete is made out of granite? No, but you know. Hey, when I was a kid, I, you guys plug your ears for a minute, okay? When I was a kid, sometimes we said, that teacher's a witch. Now, did we literally think that she had a book of incantations? We weren't really sure. But no, okay, we didn't. It was a metaphor, okay? It was like not very nice, okay? So when Jesus says, let's eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's using metaphor. Now, all of us come to the Bible with preconceived notions and, and influences in our lives. If you had grown up in a church um, that taught transubstantiation, you would have one per set of perspectives on this. What's transubstantiation? There are some churches that teach that when you take the elements of the communion, they literally become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I would remind you, when Jesus instituted the, the ordinance called communion, the Lord's table, he said, this do in what? Remembrance of me. There is a big difference between remembrance of and receiving of. You don't receive Christ by taking the elements of communion. You do it in remembrance of him. There are two ordinances in the local church, baptism and the Lord's table, and both are a picture of a relationship with God. The elements of communion picture the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. The, uh, the, the ordinance of baptism, and this is why it's by immersion, pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and says, I'm dead to my old life and I'm risen with him to walk in a whole new life. Okay, so that's a picture. So you might have grown up in a church that taught the elements are, they impart salvation to you. Now, I, I grew up in a Protestant church. I'm a Baptist, and I don't believe Baptists are Protestant, but I grew up in a Protestant church as a kid, all right? I was a, a United Methodist as a kid. Now, sadly, our United Methodist church did not preach the Bible. They didn't preach salvation at all. So I grew up in modernist theology. So I didn't have the idea that, you know, you eat, eat your flesh, drink his blood speaks of the communion table. But I will tell you this, when I first started going to a Christian school, after we started going to a Bible-preaching church, we had a missionary come. He was a missionary to Papua New Guinea. And I remember one day he'd been telling us stories about his life work, and he said, now today I'm going to tell you about a colleague of mine. And he said, my colleague works with a tribe that are cannibals. Cannibals. You know what cannibals do. They eat people. And he said, amazing. People told him, you do not want to go to that tribe. They, they'll cook you and eat you. He's like, they have souls. Christ died for them. Somebody's got to go to speak to them. They said, yeah, but you won't live. He said, I, if I die trying, I'm trying. I've got to go tell them. So he went to this tribe, and he said he was making some progress. And then one day, uh, something upset them, and the drums were beating, and the pot was boiling, and the, the native men put on their war paint, and they surrounded the house, and they were beckoning the missionary to dinner. And he was, he was the menu. So they're saying, you come out. And he, he put his wife and children behind him in the house. He said, stay here. I'm going to go talk to this chief. And he said, chief, listen, we are here to tell you about God. You do not want to eat us. Mm, we eat you. We eat you. He said, chief, you, you don't want to eat us. I'm here to give you the message of the creator who made you. And he said, you could just see the demonic fervor in these people's eyes. There was no reasoning with them. And this is the truth about mobs. You don't reason with mobs. And so he said, we cook you and eat you. And the missionary telling the story said, my, my colleague did something in his desperation that may sound shocking to you, but he, he took out a knife and he thrust it into the upper part of his leg and he cut out a chunk and he handed it to the cannibal. He said, chief, you don't want to eat us. And the cannibal took a chunk and started chewing on it. We know eat you. We know eat you. And I'm imagining the man with blood running down his thigh. You know, this is 
gruesome. He said, now, the detail I didn't tell you earlier. My missionary colleague had lost his leg in a farming accident when he was a boy. And he said, back then, they made prosthetic legs out of cork. So when he cut a portion out of his upper leg and gave it to the man, he must have thought, these Americans are really tough meat, you know, these guys. (laughs) And I still remember the, the point to the illustration was, All things work together for good to them that love God. He said, you know, better to have lost your leg on the farm than lose your life in the jungle. And so God, and he said, that man went on and led that whole tribe to Jesus Christ. They all got saved. But I got to tell you, when I'm reading this passage in John 6, I'm thinking cannibalism. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? The Jews are thinking that. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now think about this. He's speaking to people that believe you're going to get to heaven by doing good. That is the common belief of all religion. You know, all religion is not the same, but all religion has a common thread. Religion teaches you've got to do something to appease God or the gods. Christianity is not religion, it's a relationship with Christ. And so they're thinking, what? Eat your flesh. He's telling them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So the hard saying, first is this analogy that seems hard to the mind, and then the implications of it, well, think of it this way. If I served you up a plate of food, you might have a good appetite, but if you only look at the food, it's not going to nourish your body. You have to eat the food in order for you to get fuel from the food. Uh, Think of it in our country, we often say you are what you eat, okay? What if you don't eat? You're not going to live very long. You've got to have food. Understand this. The Lord Jesus Christ is presented to people week after week after week in churches like this. But if you don't personally imbibe him, if you personally do not receive him, you don't have life in you. You're not going to heaven because your name's on the roll of some church. You're not going to heaven because you identify as Christian. Look, this is, this is my whole qualm of the whole transgender movement. I mean, if I say, well, I, I'm a woman... So I can win in the, you know, if I can be Leah Thomas and win in the women's uh, swim competitions, then I'm a man? What, what if I said, well, I'm not winning on the regular Olympic tour, but maybe I'll go compete in the Special Olympics. Is it okay if I identify as a Special Olympian so I can win? What? Just because you identify as a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. There's a way to become a Christian. You must be born again. And so let me tell you something. These, these people are like, yeah, we're the children of God. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, unless you have me as your very life and sustenance, you have no life in you. I want to ask you all, have you been born again? Are you saved? If not, God wants you to be. God wants you to be. But just claiming to be something does not make you something. I could claim that I'm a veteran of the Navy, so I could, you know, go to Navy Federal Credit Union and uh, have one up on Gronk, you know, and hey, at least get my insurance there. But I'm not entitled to Navy benefits because I'm not a Navy veteran. You're not going to go to heaven just because you say, I'm a Christian. You must be born again. So you have to imbibe him. You have to take him. That's the hard saying. But then notice the easy choice. Jump down to verse 66 for a minute. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. I wrote down, soft choices give birth to hard consequences. Soft choices give birth to hard one of the reasons I, I chose this passage to preach on, I, I read excerpts from a book some years ago called The Fall of the Evangelical Nation. 
And the writer said that in evangelical churches, that's any church that's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, in evangelical churches, 94% of young people who grew up in church drop out of church by the time they're two years removed from high school. That's by the time they're 20. 94% of those who grew up in church drop out. Most never return. In fact, only 12% of the dropouts ever come back. Have you ever known kids that grew up in church? See, guys, that means within two years of you graduating from high school, the majority of you, if statistics played out, will not be in church anymore. You're like, well, that's not going to happen to me. I sure hope not. I hope not. But it won't happen by accident. It'll only happen on purpose. If you understand the Bible is the truth and God is right and Jesus Christ is not just a historical religious figure, he must be your savior. So that's the crisis point. But then that brings us to the crucial question. Number two is the crucial question. Let's go back to verse 61 for a minute. And I want to go from 61 down to 66. We, we need to get some, some more information here. Back in 61, when Jesus knew in himself, the disciples murmured at it. He said to them, does, does this offend you? Okay, what's that mean? The word offend means to trip up, to cause to stumble. Okay, does what I'm saying cause you to trip up? Is it offensive to you? Then he says this, and I got to tell you, at first I didn't understand um, verse 62. I didn't understand it in the context. What and if he shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Okay, now think with me. Where, where was Jesus Christ before he came to earth, folks? Heaven. Understand this. Jesus did not come into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He existed in eternity past. He is God. He is the very God of very God. Okay? So ascends up where he was before. Okay, that would be heaven. How's that fit in here? Have you ever seen somebody saved? Like I was, I was glad to hear that this, this uh, sister who trusted Christ last time that I was able to preach on live stream had a brother who cared enough to disciple her. You know, the Great Commission wasn't just get people saved. It was get them saved, baptized, and teach them to observe all things. So when somebody gets saved, that's just the start. It's not the end, okay? What a blessing to have a brother that would disciple his sister, have you ever been working with somebody and they have trusted Christ, but all of a sudden they get off on these, these tangential doctrines that are like, in fact, they're off on false doctrine, and you think, where are you getting this? And of course, YouTube, you know, or some social media channel or whatever. Or I watched this guy on TBN, and he said this. And you say, ah, have you thought about this verse? And you start showing him scripture, and like, oh, I didn't know that. You're thinking, oh, boy, this is why we need to disciple people, because you can easily get led astray, right? Not, we're not to be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Okay, Jesus is their teacher. He says, if what I'm telling you is perplexing, why don't you ask me? I'm right here. What are you fellas going to do when I ascend back up to heaven and I'm not with you anymore? By the way, he already had that anticipated. He would send another comforter, one of the very same kind, that is the Holy Spirit. But he says, I'm here. Why don't you ask me? Which is why I'm telling you, when you get stumped by a passage, how about first thing you talk to the author and say, Lord, I don't get it. Go to verse 63 now. It's the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words I speak to you, they're spirit and they're life. What does he mean the spirit quickens? Word quicken is, is, yes, it's to make alive, but it's not like make alive on life support. It's to make lively, animated, active, energized. The spirit quickens. Interesting here, the spirit is lowercase. Normally when you hear the expression, the spirit in the New Testament you often think of whom? 
The Holy Spirit, yeah. But in this context, I don't believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Why not? We'll read the rest of the verse. The Spirit quickeneth, flesh profit nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they're what? They're spirit in their life. Okay, so how does a person get saved? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is to a person what spirit is to a body. When the spirit leaves the body, the person is dead. What happens is you will not be born again unless you've heard the word of God preached and you believe it. How shall they hear without a preacher? Now, we know the Holy Spirit is the one who imparts life. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't have part in conversion. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. But the fact of the matter is, in the context here, he's talking about my words are spirit, they're life, and I'm telling you this so you can believe and be saved. That's what brought Martin Luther, a man who was working his way to heaven, trying to get to heaven, to the realization that the scripture repeatedly says the just shall live by faith. He said, it's not my priestly efforts that will get me to heaven, it's Jesus Christ's high priestly effort that gets me to heaven. He died and was buried and rose again, and he ever lives to make intercession for me. It's his completed work that makes me right with God. That's what you and I need to realize. I'm not saved by my efforts. I'm saved by what he did on the cross when he said it is finished. He died in agony and gave up the spirit, gave up the ghost at his behest. He died that we might live. He died for our sins and then rose again to show that God the Father had accepted the sacrifice. Go to verse 64. But there's some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. He said to them, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. Go back up to verse 44. I didn't read this earlier, but it's in the context. 44, no man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him. I'll raise him up at the last day. Uh, Let me just, because it's in the text, let me just touch on for a moment the foreknowledge of God. Some people go to seed on the foreknowledge of God. Well, if it's foreknown, it's foreordained, you know, and it, it... like, so, like, you're either going to be saved or you're not, and you really don't have a say in it. Whoa, 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 I don't believe that. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He says very pointedly, I will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He further says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, I, when I was in high school, I remember I was being taught by some teachers in college that had been, they had been given a heavy dose of... Um, the sovereignty of God, and they were, they were telling us, yeah, you know, really, it's just you're either elect by God's choice or you're not. And I asked my dad, Dad, well, I'm kind of per- confused by this because there are things in the Bible like God so loved the world and he wants all men to be saved. My dad said, son, remember this. The Bible never contradicts itself. Scriptures only complement each other. He said, get your theology from the Bible. He said, I know you read through the Bible every year. Do this. Fold a piece of paper in half, and as you're reading through your Bible this year, On the left side, you know, put any verses that say God's sovereignty. On the other side, put uh, man's responsibility. And if verses seem to favor one or the other, just write them in the appropriate column. But when the year's done, do this. Go back and study all those passages in light of each other. Not isolated from each other, in light of each other. He said, you will find that Scripture never contradicts, it only complements. He said, look, Rich, when, when God's ways don't seem to make sense, the problem's not with God, it's with us. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. That gave me a real balanced view of theology. Some have told me, well, you know, if it's foreknown, it's foreordained. Careful about that. Did God foreknow that Satan would sin? He absolutely did. He knows everything. Did God ordain Satan to sin? If you say he did, you have a theological problem. 
Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. God cannot be tempted. With evil neither tempteth he any man. Every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So yes, God knew Satan would sin, but that doesn't mean he condoned it. The foreknowledge of God is just such that it blows the mind. He takes into account all the variables, all the opportunities. If you're perplexed by the understanding of God, think about this. Imagine trying to teach calculus to a kindergartner. <laughs> Imagine trying to teach calculus to me. Okay, you'd be frustrated enough. But if you're a mathematical person, like, I could teach you calculus. You could teach somebody calculus, you just couldn't teach me calculus. Poof, over my head. I went as high as trig, trigonometry in high school. That's it, okay? Imagine being God and trying to explain yourself to men. But he does a wonderful job of it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. That's why he says, study to show thyself approved unto God. Okay, so I'm dealing with the sovereignty of God and his foreknowledge, which is in the text. So don't let that perplex you. But it is true. You don't, you don't just wake up and say, yeah, I think I'll go find God today. God draws you to himself. All right? So back to, and I believe he wants to draw all men. I believe, you might be sitting here today and you say, ah, it's good for everybody else, but I'm just here for my family member. I'm an atheist. God does not believe in atheists. He says, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. God does not to insults, folks. That's below God's nature. He's not being insulting when he says that. He's saying it's absurdity for you to act as if I don't exist. I've given you ample evidence of myself. It's not a matter of intellectual persuasion. It is a matter of the will that you don't believe in me. God doesn't believe in atheists. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. And I know this about him. He's drawing you to himself right now, even if you say you don't believe in him. Go on with me to verse 65. Therefore said I to you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus to the twelve, will you also go away? There is the crucial question. Will you also go away? Where, where did they go? Some went back to work for righteousness. And some went back to serve sin. See, neither will ever result in anything of value. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done according to his mercy, he saved us. And then as far as going back to sin, Proverbs says the, the wicked turns back to his sin like the dog to his own vomit. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So some went back to serve sin, some went back to, to work for righteousness, but the sad thing is they went back. Here's what the scripture says, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Not everybody that claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Titus 1, 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient unto every good work, reprobate. They profess they know God. Yeah, but their works tell otherwise. You're not saved by works. No, but you are saved unto good works. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. So when you get saved, you are changed. Now, is there still carnality? Oh, yeah. Is there still a will to surrender? You know it. Still the old man? Yep. But let me finish with this. See, we have the crisis point, we have the crucial question, but lastly, the conscious choice, verses 68 to 71. Look at 68 with me. And Simon Peter answered him. He just asked, will you go away? He answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. All right, notice two choices here. Peter, a response of devotion. Where would we go, Lord? You've got the words of eternal life. We're, we're convinced. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. What's another word for Christ? I'll give you a hint. It begins with an M. You are the Messiah. You're the Christ. And then you're the son of whom? Son of God. You're Christ. You're son of God. Let me ask you this. Is Peter in heaven? Yes, he is. Was Peter a believer? Book of John says, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you might have life through his name. Peter says, I believe he's the Christ, the Son of God. Did Peter ever stumble? Oh boy, big time. Peter cursed and swore and denied he even knew the Lord. But remember this, the Lord said, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, you collectively, you as a group, y'all. Okay, where I grew up at Jews, guys. Okay, so he's desired, desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for thee, that's you as an individual. I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Peter never lost his salvation. You don't lose your salvation. If anybody could have lost it, you would think Peter would when he publicly cussed and swore and denied that he knew the Lord. No, I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. You never lose your relationship, but you can get out of fellowship. Peter didn't. When the Lord restored him to fellowship, he didn't say, now you get back to the altar and get saved again. He said, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. He didn't say go get saved again. He said, get back to what I called you to do. Okay, so there's Peter, a response of devotion, a reminder of the best of men are men at best. But then there's Judas, a response of defection. To defect is to denounce one's citizenship and go somewhere else. Look at verse... Uh, 70 again, have not I chosen you twelve, one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas, Iscariot, son of Simon, for he that was should betray him, being one of the twelve. You know what's interesting? Jesus prophesied that one of them would betray him. When he said that, here's, here's something that did not happen. Nobody in the group looked down at Judas and went, uh-huh. Had a feeling about that guy. No, no. In fact, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they all said, Lord, is it, is it I? You talking about me? Is it I? They sooner suspected themselves than they did Judas Iscariot, which is a reminder you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can fool God none of the time. And Chris was reminding me of his testimony in 2000. I was preaching at Ohana Baptist Church in Honolulu, and Chris was there, and he said, you know, Rich, I don't know if you remember this. I do once he reminded me. He said, I went home after church, and then I came back. I got to talk to you. And Chris said, you, you preached the message. He said, the way I remember is counterfeit Christianity. I had one called cultural Christianity. He said, that was me. And he showed me in his Bible, 1.30 something in the morning, 1.36 or something in the morning, in July of 2000, Chris Andreessen called upon Jesus Christ to truly be his Savior. What a blessing. You might be here this morning and you need that. It's not a recommitment. It's not like, I, you know, i got to get saved again. You know, once you're saved, you are saved. But I will tell you this. It's possible to grow up and go through the machinations, the motions, but not know the master, not know the savior. It's really interesting. Some would say, you know, that's a terrible tragedy that Judas sold out Jesus Christ. The tragedy was not that Judas sold out the savior. The tragedy was Judas was the one for sale. But I want you to think about yourself. Are you for sale? 
Or are you sold out? Sold out to the Savior. Think of it this way as we go to our invitation time. If every member of Good News Baptist Church were just as committed to the Lord as you are, would you want to belong to this church? Or some of you are from other churches. If you're visiting, how about people from your home church? If they were as serious about God, as committed to God as you are, would you want to belong to that church? That's a challenging thought, isn't it? Well, I'm trying. The Christian life is not about trying. It's about trusting. It's about yielding to God. And the only way to be sold out to him is to recognize you can only be sold out because you've been bought with the blood. You're his purchased possession. It's not your sale that makes it valuable. It's the price he paid to purchase you. What? No, you're not. That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God with your body and with your spirit, which are God's. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.